<clears throat> I have my secretaries uh, sitting on the left hand side. Hi, Josh. <laughs> Hi, Gabby. <laughs> They're dealing with the questions, uh, which will oh, be So nice to hear your voice. So now we are live on YouTube. So what time is it now? It's lunchtime for you? So 11 a.m. Yeah. 11 a.m. Okay. 11 a.m. So. Seven. Okay. It starts. Very good. Okay. Then good morning, Josh. Yeah. For us, it's seven o'clock in the evening. Uh, thank you very much for joining us at Wolfie's Talks. It's, it's a real pleasure to have you. Um, when, I, when I did some research about you, I, I thought about it that sometimes in life you meet people and uh, it's interesting when you, when you start speaking to them that it's really a humbling experience when you find out how much they know and, and then you find out how little you know about certain things. And it was, was always a pleasure when we met uh, and you started to explain things to us. And I thought it was just amazing because some people just look at a bicycle and they just see kind of a, a bicycle. And, and for you, I think you see like, like the most of us see really one of the, the most beautiful inventions uh, or invention in, in, the, in the science history and, and then you know so much about it. So it's, it's really amazing. And I'm really excited to speak to you. So thank you very much for joining us. No, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to see you. Yes. Um, you have been working with, with so many teams. You have been with SIP for 15 years. You have been working with uh, top athletes like Fabian Cancellara, uh, Christine Armstrong, Paolo Sastre, and many, many other teams. Um, can you take us back to the times at Zip when you when you started to work with them? Oh yeah, so uh, a long time ago. So we, you know, Zip uh, was started in the late '80s and really became a triathlon brand um, because it just wasn't accepted in road. You know, the first three-spoke wheel, the first deep section wheel, that crazy beam bike. You know, the Zip 2001. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the brand grew with triathletes, but never with roadies. And so the company actually went out of business or almost out of business in 98 uh, and was bought by Andy Ording. And I met him in 99 uh, to join. And my vision, I had uh, you know, been to college for engineering, uh, aerospace, automotive uh, engineering, and um, really wanted to take the brand into road and uh, saw a lot of opportunities there. And so, you know, I had raced in Europe for a couple of seasons uh, in the mid nineties and had that background. And so I probably 2000, 2001 started uh, taking products to Europe to try to get pro teams signed on and just could not do it. I mean, nobody wanted the stuff. And, uh, and finally, I think it was 2002, maybe end of 02, we met with Bjarn Reese and he had um, SRMs with his guys. And I, it was one of those moments where we said, Ooh, use the SRM, those wheels, these wheels, and we can show you the difference. And that was really the beginning of, uh, the carbon wheel in the pro Peloton and the beginning of us, uh, 
you know, in Europe at that level, at the pro tour level. So the next season we had CSC um, and then really leveraged that into, you know, team after it's like every time riders would leave, they would get to a new team and they would want wheels. And so, you know, when Tyler left CSC to Phonak, he said, well, we have to have zip wheels, <laughs> you know, and so it just grew. Um, and I think by, yeah, 2006, I mean, I think we were working with six teams, seven teams where I think three or four of them were purchasing the stuff. I mean, it was a, it was a great era. Um, you know, not everybody made carbon wheels. And so, you know, we made, we made the stuff for Campagnolo for a while. We, I mean, I think we made for like 25 or 30 brands uh, there for a bit. And so then through those relationships, uh, got to know all of their athletes and their teams. Um, yeah. So it was, it, it was a really exciting time. So when you started with SIP, was it that people were still obviously thinking about aluminum and they thought that carbon is too brittle? Because I think by that time there were carbon frames on the market. So what was the, the biggest resentment they had against, against the carbon wheels? I think honestly, in, in Europe, the thing they had against them was that they were new and different and um, scary, right? I mean, it's a very traditional sport. Uh, and then I think for the rest of the world, they looked to Europe and said, well, the pros in Europe aren't using them, so they must not work. Uh, I mean, we see that today with a lot of technologies that if, if the pros haven't adopted it, then the consumers don't see it as legitimate. Um, and so we had to convince first the pros to use the stuff and then the trickle down. I mean, it, it, it took years. It, it really took years, but eventually it happened. And You know, I think now people look at, oh, of course we ride, you know, it's like it took four years to get, you know, Fabian and, and all those guys to ride the carbon wheels on the cobbles. And then the next year, the entire Peloton was on carbon wheels. And it, that was the standard. You know, oh, of course, we ride carbon on the cobbles. It's the fastest. They won. You know, I mean, it, it uh, but it, it, there's a lot of psychological barriers uh, that I think take even longer to break through than some of the technological barriers. Is it that as well, obviously lightweight was always the thing to go for because aerodynamic is so difficult to measure for people yeah. when they're riding the bikes and wheels? Yeah, for sure. You know, there's a, a cognitive bias. Uh, it's called the McNamara effect. And it's that we, we bias towards things that we can measure easily. And then we place the importance on that. Um, and that's, that's the problem with weight. You know, for, it was weight is the easiest thing to measure. And so we've had it the longest. Uh, and the other, the second one is stiffness, right? Because you just need uh, a weight and some sort of measuring device for deflection and you can measure stiffness. Uh, and so our industry has placed real priority on those two elements of a bicycle for the longest time. Uh, but when you really, you, you take the math and the physics and you break it down, those are probably the two least important mm -hmm. elements of, a of going fast. Um, but of course, To, to turn people towards aerodynamics, I mean, it took us, it took us a dozen years, I think. Yes. But you had a super cool team with CSC, obviously, that was at the time, that was one of the coolest teams. They had the, the Cervelo bikes and then obviously the Sid yeah. wheels and you had Fabian Cancellara. And I remember there was a race in, in Tour de France where he won a stage and he went just for the last kilometer, he just went for an attack uh, with his 808s and he was just driving away from everyone. Uh, do you remember that day? Oh yeah, I was there. That was, that was a brilliant day. No, he uh, is one of my all time favorite quotes coming out of that. You know, he finished and that night at dinner, he said, uh, he said, 808 is the new 404. <laughs> and, yeah. and he was telling the whole team that they needed to ride them all the time. 
uh, I mean, you could really, you know, and that, you know, that was, I think it took probably two years of taking all those guys to the wind tunnel a couple times a year and showing them the differences um, and telling them, I mean, we would tell him, you know, your Cervelo with these wheels is faster than the other team's time trial bike. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when you're out there on an attack, you're on a time trial bike and they're on a normal bike. Like it's a huge advantage. And I think once, once you could trigger the mentally for them, yes. the advantage, then it, it suddenly had meaning. You know, I think up until then, so many of the riders looked at uh, carbon wheels, especially um, as, as a risk, right? What if they break? What if I hit something and crack them? What if it's windy and the handling is difficult, right? So I think the riders struggled mentally um, to be comfortable with the wheels. And, you know, that, that's the problem with sport, right? If, if uh, you know, in car racing, if you do something to make the car faster, it, it's faster, unless it scares the driver. Um, right. You know, in, in cycling, though, if the rider's out there worrying about the handling or worrying about the wind in their mind, then they're not, they're not going full gas. Um, or, or it could keeps them from going full gas, right? I mean, it's that doubt uh, that can play in and, and that's too big of a risk to take. So yeah, I would say with, even to this day, the bulk of the work I do with uh, teams and athletes is on the psych- psychological side, uh, even more so than the technical side. <laughs> Just to convince them that what you give them is really faster compared to what you were writing in the past. Yeah, and, and to trust it, right? It's, it's a real trust um, issue. And I think that's, you know, that's why I spend so much time in Europe with the teams is kind of embedding with them and, and understanding their issues and their, their fears and their worries. Um, you know, cycling is a big, uh, it's a big mental sport, right? It's about suffering and, uh, risk. And, you know, we don't, we can't do things to them that add suffering or add risk. <laughs> um, because it can take them off their game uh, mentally. You know, if, if a wheel is, is 1% faster, um, but it, it puts doubt in the mind of the rider, then it's not faster anymore. Yes. Uh, and and so, which project more you feel is the, was the, the, the most challenging or the, the most rewarding when you, when you had it with Zip? Where the, the 303 for Roubaix or what comes to mind? Oh gosh, yeah, there's so many. Uh, the 303 for Roubaix was probably the hardest fought yeah, longest. I think that was three years in the making of, um, you know, going over there. And at, at first we couldn't, we couldn't build wheels that worked, you know, they broke every time. Um, and so it was just failure after failure. I mean, it was really, that project was three years. It was probably two and a half years of pure failure. And then like maybe three months of, of victory. <laughs> I mean, it, we, we just got our heads kicked in over and over with that. And then once you know, we had to figure out the air pressure and the tires. We had to convince them because if you remember the, the riders of that era, they were riding 21s in road racing and 24s at Roubaix. And all of the data was that these 27, 28 millimeter tires were faster, but nobody would ride them because they thought they were, they were slow because they were too big. Um, and so it was collecting the data, proving it to the riders going, I mean, I, you know, we had a, a day in the cobbles, um, one year with uh, a number of riders, but Alberto Contador was there and, you know, he would ride out and back and the data was just clear as day. I mean, the, the wider tire was faster and he would just say, nope, I know what I feel. 
is not faster. I know what I feel. I'm like, you're faster. And they just wouldn't believe it. And, uh, you know, and then finally, the, one of my favorite elements of that story, you know, we had, uh, we had Cervelo test team who was gonna, were gonna ride the wheels and we had CSC or Saxo Bank, I guess by then. Um, and that morning, Cancellara, uh, last minute got nervous and he said, no, I, I don't think I can ride them. It's too big of a risk. And uh, it, as everybody was kind of getting ready and, and prepared in the pits, uh, some Cervelo test team guys rode by and Tor Hushov was riding the 303s and Fabian was like, well, he's riding them. Oh, okay, I need them, I need them, you know? And I think it was that we, we had done enough preparation mentally with him that as to the advantage of the wheel, that all of a sudden it, it inverted the risk for him, right? It went from, what if I break them to what if the other guy has the advantage and I don't? Um, and that, that funnily enough was the thing that uh, I, I think flipped it. And uh, yeah, he, I mean, we, we've got data and I think I've shared, shown with you uh, I have a slide that I shared when I was there giving a talk what a few months, what, last year, but uh, you know, all of the things we did, the wheels, um, the, the tires, the tire pressure, I mean, all of the things that we put in place for him uh, were worth something like 70 watts uh, at 30 miles an hour um, over the setup that, that uh, Tom Bonin was on. This is and, crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, a huge number. Um, so yeah, that, that was probably our hardest fought, biggest yeah. victory. Cause too, you know, the things that we're doing, uh, this marginal gains work, right. It, it's not guaranteeing victory. I mean, you still have to race the bike. And so, you know, we, we're playing, it's a little bit like Moneyball. you know, we're playing with the percentages around the edges, um, 2% here and 5% there and 4% there. And, you know, we're just, uh, we're, we're just skewing the math in the favor of that rider. Um, but they still have, they still have to do everything that they can do and do it right. And so it's, it's not always in life that, uh, you know, the fastest guy wins or the guy on the fastest equipment wins. And so that one was just, I think, brilliant luck for us as well, that it all came together, uh, just perfectly. Fantastic. And um, so for me, it's still tough, honestly, to get my head around. I know it, I've seen it, and I'm, I'm convinced now, but for me, it was really difficult to go to 25, 28 millimeter tires, because I was as well convinced that this is faster when you have a, it feels faster, yeah? And then only when you see the data and you really analyze it a little bit more uh, properly. When, when was the first time when you at Zip uh, came along and you said, okay, this is this is really faster when we go with a bigger tire. That's actually a question from Wes. So I encourage everyone who's, who's listening and, and uh, watching, they can, they can ask us questions on Zoom or on, on um, YouTube. So please. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so we, it was probably around that 2008, 2009 as we were working on Roubaix and we knew we needed the bigger tire to protect the wheel on the cobbles. Mm -hmm. And we would do testing on the cobbles and we started to see in the data that that not only was the bigger tire more protective but it actually was faster and then as we lowered the pressure um and ran the testing over and over again we just saw the riders go faster and faster and so that was for me the the beginning of this idea that you know there, there's something else in play this what we now call the impedance effect um that you know, you, you've got the first part of the rolling resistance curve, right? Whereas pressure 
um, pressure comes up, rolling resistance comes down. And then we started to see, and you can graph it in testing, um, that at some point as the pressure goes higher and higher, the rolling resistance all of a sudden kicks up like this. Mm -hmm. um, and we call that the impedance effect. And that's, you know, this side of the curve is, is the casing losses in the tire. And this side of the curve is essentially the, the mechanical like bouncing and lifting and shaking of the rider. And I think the, that happens on all non-perfectly smooth surfaces, but the cobbles were so extreme that even with the equipment we had in 08, we could see it. Um, and so, you know, over the years, once you knew to look for it, we started going for, you know, we needed better power meters, better, right, better measuring equipment. Um, and it became easier and easier to see. And now it's, it's that's widely accepted as true. Um, but yeah, it's sort of, it was a crazy thought experiment of, well, if, if that exists on this super rough surface condition here, it should theoretically exist in all rough surfaces, just to some lesser degree. And so, trying to put numbers to that, um, it's been hard. I mean, you know, we just published our tire pressure calculator, I think three or four months ago with kind of all of this, it's 10 years of data, uh, I think more than 4,000 uh, unique optimizations uh, and tests included in that, in that data. But I mean, it, it's literally taken me uh, more than 10 years to, to build the math behind that to make it actually predictive. Um, that you can now put your data in and it'll say, oh, you know, with high certainty, this is your optimal, uh, you know, within a couple PSI. Um, that, that proved to be really hard. <laughs> in but, August 2013, there was quite a big change in your life. So you, you left Zip after almost 15 years and, and you yeah. bought one of the, the most traditional companies when it comes to, to cycling equipment. Uh, you bought Silka. Yeah. Uh, which is known as a, a pump company. Um, and then you, you kind of rewent the whole company uh, to, to an accessories company and obviously as well a pump company, but as well, well with a super high level of, of standard uh, when it comes to the pumps. And I think they are one of the most beautiful pumps in the market uh, you, you can get. Um, how was that when you started, when you went from Zip to Zilka? Oh, that was crazy. I mean, it was good. You know, I... I had done really the same thing for 15 years at Zip. Uh, I mean, I loved it, but you know, we the wheels it, wheels were great, but it eventually was kind of making the same thing over and over again. And you know, each refinement was exciting, but it just kind of brought a little bit lesser reward. And I was looking for something new and different. And um, I really liked working with the teams and the riders and. Uh, doing tunnel testing and optimization. And so I was looking to leave and do something else. Uh, I just wasn't sure what that was. And so Claudio uh, Sachi, who's the third, uh, the grandson of the founder of Silka, third generation owner, uh, he had was calling around uh, looking for advice because he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer uh, and the company was bankrupt. And he he wanted somebody to try to buy the name and save it, but he just wasn't having any luck. And so um, I think I was probably one of the last people, <laughs> honestly, that he called. Uh, but he called me looking for advice, you know, saying, who, who do you know that I could try to sell the company to? Because I've been trying to sell it for six months and nobody's interested. Uh, yeah. And I thought, whoa, you're crazy. Who's going to buy a bankrupt pump company in Italy? Like, <laughs> that's dumb. <laughs> and uh, 
yeah. And then I think a couple of weeks of thinking about it, thought, wow, there's, there's just so much you could do. You know, I was already building custom pumps for pro teams uh, at Zip. You know, we had custom gauges we were building, custom pumps, uh, because the, the pump gauges aren't accurate. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we'd struggled for years at Zip with valve extenders. You know, I think when I joined Zip uh, in 99, the, the, the two biggest customer service questions we had in 99 were, um, how do I get air in a disc wheel? Because the little valve adapter is terrible. And um, how do I stop my valve extenders from leaking? And when I left Zip in 2013, our top two customer service questions were, how do I put air in this disc wheel? Mm -hmm. And how do I stop my valve extenders from leaking? And so, you know, there was part of me that said, well, why don't we just make a valve extender that works? And why don't we just make a disc wheel adapter that works? Like somebody just needs to put some engineering into that. but the wheel company is not going to do that. You know, at Zip, I mean, we would never prioritize that over the next better wheel or the next crank or the next handlebar. Um, so yeah, it felt it felt doable. It felt like something I could pick up and run with, and um, hopefully make something cool and unique and beautiful and quality. You know, I think was uh, you know when you live in this pro world, you see the way the rate the mechanics. I mean, you you see it in your shop, right? The, tools are not made like they used to be. And so, you know, hex keys die in six months and pumps, you know, a pump in a bike shop lasts three months and it's gone. I mean, it, you know, they snap in half or the handles fall off. I mean, it, it, it's unbelievable the, the level of quality that people were making things to. And I think, you know, that there's so much price pressure. And so my vision was a, a company in this category that had no, um, no price pressures. You know, we didn't need to, the, the limiting, the design criteria for the pump wasn't going to be, um, you know, $70 price point, right? Mm-hmm. The design criteria was going to be the best and the price would fall where it may. Uh, and, and so we really took that, that uh, kind of outlook with all the products that we do and, you know, stuff's expensive, but it works and people love it. And, uh, you know, there's certainly a customer for that. It's, it's not for everybody, but, uh, you know, we're not a company for everybody. We're, we're a company for really, really passionate, really enthusiastic, uh, you know, lovers of the sport. Um, you know, people who find joy working on the bike and and tuning their setup and optimizing their air pressures. And you know, we're we're that company. And uh, you know, if if that's not your thing, then there's a million companies making pumps and tools and stuff for you to buy. <laughs> the world. The world does not need another company making cheap accessories. Yes. No, the pumps are absolutely amazing. And I think you did some amazing projects with Dario Pegoretti before he unfortunately yeah. passed away. You did yeah. Continue racing and other projects. So how was it? How did you come to that connection with, with Dario Pegoretti? <laughs> so that, that story is funny. I, when we launched the ultimate pump, um, you know, it was $450 and people went just crazy. I mean, we would get this brilliant hate mail, you know, people would just, they would just sit and, you know, hate mail us at their computer, you know, you're terrible and you're ruining the sport. And uh, we got this one particular email from a guy who, I mean, just said the meanest, I mean, it was just this awful string of curse words. And, um, but what really came out is he said, you know, you're, you, you become a fashion 
company for douchebags who ride and he listed like who ride Pegoretti frames and Campagnolo components and wear this brand of shoes and you know wear Osos and I mean he just had all of this hate and uh, and I remember thinking you know they they want to beat us into making something cheap and I want to flip that on its head and go back at them with something expensive and so I knew that Richard Sachs uh, was friends with Dario and I called Richard and I said, hey, you know, can I have Dario's, uh, you know, phone number? I'd like to ask him to paint some pumps so we could make even more expensive pumps. And, uh, and so he gave it to me and I called him and he just, I mean, I, I couldn't believe he answered his phone and he was just like, ciao, Josh, you know, and he was game for whatever we wanted. And so we took uh, that hate mail, the email, and we uh, had Dario paint it on a pump and we sold, that was the first Pegoretti we ever sold with that email hand lettered by Dario. And uh, we, we put it on the internet for uh, $2,500 uh, and it sold in less than a minute. Wow. And, uh, and so we, we emailed back to the guy who sent us the hate mail and I said, hey, thank you for inspiring us to not just make a $450 pump, but to make a $2,500 pump with Mr. Pegoretti, you know, <laughs> thank you and you're welcome. Um, and I'm still kind of sad that we never heard from him again. But uh, but no, it it was it was honestly I think me wanting to poke that particular hater in the eye, and uh, but it just struck a chord with people. I mean, they were beautiful and fascinating, and and you know, I mean, you you, you know, you could call Dario and talk to him, and then he would paint something for you. Uh, and so yeah, we just got to every quarter. He would do like ten pumps for us, and we'd bring him in and. You know, you you would open the market to them, and they would sell in minutes, um, as you know, because you 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 are the only shop in the world who was uh, who was buying them and and inventorying them and selling them. It was uh, it was an amazing time, amazing time. And we have a lot of customers. Really, they they treat it like an art piece, and it is obviously an art piece when you see it's hand painted, and it was really some absolutely stunning and unique uh, pieces we got from him. Yeah. Besides the pumps, what's the product which is closest to your heart when it comes to silica products? Ooh, that's a hard. You know the the little the T ratchet and tie torque. Mm -hmm. um, that that was a project that I I just had in my brain. It, it, there's this problem in engineering where like you can picture it in your head. And then every time you sit down to like draw it or, or model it in three dimensions, you just can't make it work. It just doesn't make sense. And uh, that was one that, that just kicked around in my brain for probably a year. Um, and every time I sat down to, to do it, I hated it and it wouldn't, I just knew it wouldn't work. And then it kind of clicked. Yeah, it just clicked one day. And I sketched it out and it was all of a sudden it was simple and it was, you know, a quarter the size and, you know, a fifth the weight of what the original idea was. I mean, it just, this, you know, kind of big piece of clay all of a sudden just went whoo, into this like really tight, elegant little idea. Um, and that, that whole thing, after a year of, of ruminating on it, I think the whole idea probably was refined and done in 24 hours. Um, I mean, it was just like that. And then to actually make it and have it work. And then it just, I mean, it, 
that product really just exploded on us. I think we, you know, we, we put it on Kickstarter and um, we actually had to cut our Kickstarter starter short because we couldn't, people were buying it faster than we could get materials to fulfill the Kickstarter. Um, and so I think we did a 30 day Kickstarter and we cut it off at 24 days because we were, we were oversold by like a thousand units or something. I mean, it was just a, a brilliant, process really for me personally you know i think from from the company's perspective it was just a wild and chaotic time you know we had a moment where we all just sat and looked at each other at the end of the kickstarter and went holy hell we've got to make all these you know <laughs> i think we had to make six thousand of them in like you know two months or something and we were at the time there the whole company was like four employees um and so yeah we i mean we just i think we worked 14 15 hours a day for a month uh, building them. Um, and then I think we worked like 20, 18 or 20 hours a day for a week to ship them to hit the day we said we would ship them to the Kickstarter. Uh, it, was, it was just wild, but it was, it was great times. I mean, looking back on it, it was one of my favorite periods of the company because uh, it was just so, everybody was so committed. You know, there was nothing else in, in the world except making these things and shipping them. Um, so yeah, that, that one I think will always occupy a special place. And, and now, honestly, it's it's gratifying to see, you know, I think there's five or six companies that have made almost identical copies of that product, um, which on the one hand is frustrating, but on the other hand, it, it, you can look back and you go, damn, we really had a good idea, you know, <laughs> that, that you have so many people making, you know, have, have just straight up copied the thing. Um, it hurts, but it also feels good. When you have your moments, when you have the creativity, is it on a bicycle or is it in the mornings? When is your creative time when you come up with these ideas? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, it's pretty random. You know, I, I don't ride much. Uh, when I do ride, I, I, I need to ride more. <laughs> you know, as you, as you know, it's, you know, owning and running a business is like, you're never off. You're just always working. Um, I think I could probably work 20 hours a day and still have emails to answer. Um, but yeah, writing is a very creative time for me. I just don't do it enough. Uh, you know, and, and other times I'd say it's, uh, I don't like commuting. I don't like driving the car and commuting, but it's, that's kind of becomes a nice time to just think, you know, it's like, I, I, I turn my phone off when I get in the car and, and uh, that ends up being 20 minutes each way that, you know, I, I, I can just think, you know, it's, there's, there's no external uh, forces coming in. So, but yeah, I, I need to get on the bike more. <laughs> Truly. When we, when we sometimes show your products to customers and, and they, they get to touch them, they get to feel the pump, they get to feel the rosewood grip and they, they feel uh, the chuck and everything like this. I think this is something really special. And I'm, I'm not sure how many times I'm, I'm sure you've been many times in the shop and I'm, I'm, I'm sure as well for your, For your staff working in the in the factory, um, it, it's it's an amazing moment, and I think it really shows the quality and the commitment. Every one of the how many now twenty over twenty staff you have now? Yes. Yeah, well, we've grown nicely. It's great. It's uh, it's a, we've got an awesome team. Awesome team. What do you think your team would say about you, about the boss, Josh? Ooh, I don't know. Um, I'm pretty particular. Um, Yeah, I don't know. That's I, 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 I will say I, 
I think I drive them nuts at times with my, um, I live in my own head a lot and I'm not the best communicator. And so I think I probably derail them uh, from what they need to be doing too often with uh, the, the latest thing that has come into my head, right? <laughs> right, because it's, so I, I'm, that's, I think probably my, my biggest weakness with, with my people is, uh, you know, I'm a big believer that, that you surround yourself with people who are, are smarter than you and have more skills than you and you empower them to go, you know, change the world. And, um, you know, I generally really try to leave them alone, but then I'm also prone to kind of like having an idea pop into my head and, and just picking the phone up and saying, hey, stop what you're doing, let's do this. And, uh, you know, you get the groan of, oh, I'm in the middle of this other things. Oh, sorry, but this is really cool, you know, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, it's, it's that separation of the urgent and the important, uh, you know, is, is not always easy. What do you enjoy most of having your own company? Now you have worked for 15 years with Zip and now being your own boss, what's the biggest joy and what's the biggest challenge? Oh gosh. Uh, I'd say the, the biggest challenge for me is I, you know, I still, as, as an engineer um, and a very technical person, I, I probably live in my own head too much for a company mm -hmm. owner. Um, it's really hard. You know, there's, there's what we call like maker's time and manager's time, right? And, and you know, a good manager is, is kind of going from thing to thing, you know, maybe meeting to meeting, um, you know, checking in with people. I mean, really, really working on the business uh, and working on the people in the business. And that's, that's really hard for me sometimes to get out of my head of, you know, if I have an, a good idea, then I would be happy to lock myself in a room and work on it for a couple of days, you know, if it, if that's what it took and you just can't do that. Um, so I think, you know, some of my, my biggest joys of running the company are, you know, when you see the team pull together and, uh, you know, I know you've seen it in your organization when they, they just blow you away with what they've come up with. You know, I, there's times that I have something in my brain that I think is going to be big and amazing. And I, I give it to them and they do their thing with it. And you come out the other end of the project and it's even bigger and more amazing than you thought it could be. And there's, you know, it's like the proud parent, right? It's like, wow, we really knocked this, you know, out of the park. This is amazing. And, um, yeah, those are just super, super proud moments. Um, and then on the, the difficult side, yeah, for me, it's, it's, I just have a lot of days where I'd love to just bury myself in a project and you, you just kind of can't do it. Mm. Um, and so it's, it, that part of it's a mixed bag, but I, I think that's, you know, everybody's got their, their strengths and weaknesses and yeah. you just try to, you, you try to lessen the weaknesses <laughs> and improve the strengths. Right. Uh, there's another fascination I think you have and you're almost obsessed with this hour record. Yeah, I think that's one of the, of the, pure, the pure events in cycling where one yeah, man yeah. or one man or one woman uh, goes on a bicycle and rides as, as far as they can in one hour. I know you have been involved in Victor Campenat's uh, success of beating the world hour record and beating uh, Bradley Wiggins. And I think he rode 55.098 kilometers and you were part of the team. So can you, can you remember? How this was uh, with Victor? No, so I actually wasn't part of that. Uh, Victor and I were working on a new record um, 
that he was hoping to break this year around the Olympics. And that's been the, the UCI has said no, uh, no, no records. So no, I, I had worked hard to convince him. Um, he's, he's a big listener to the podcast. And so it was, it was when they were, uh, all under quarantine in the UAE at the tour UAE that, uh, um, I guess a bunch of them were listening to, to our podcast and, and he contacted me and, and said, Hey, I, I, I hear what you're saying and I think I can go faster. You know, can we do this? I'm in, let's go. Um, and then the UCI said, no, uh, no contest, but no. So I have been involved in a bunch, almost all of the other modern, uh, um, our records in some capacity or another, um, except for his. <laughs> we had <laughs> but, Alex uh, on the show a, a couple mm -hmm. of days ago. Uh, yeah, he, yeah. It was very, very interesting. We spoke about his hour record. Um, so how far do you think possibly when everything works and they're on altitude, what's what's the number in your head and the dream number you have? 56? Uh, 56 is possible. Yeah, I don't... Uh, it, it's hard to say. You know, I think if we get the right... Um, the, the, the challenge, I think, is going to become the acclimatization to the altitude you know mm -hmm. we're or a change to the rules of the bike um you know we're really getting close i mean i i you know i, I think victor could put another um at aquas calientes he could put another probably 500 meters on his record um with some of the stuff we did there's you know there's an even higher track now but the problem is you start to lose too much power and so, you know, in my mind, there's, there's going to be some, um, you know, South American time trial specialist born <laughs> that, that uh, you know, you know, grew up at, uh, you know, 8,000 feet or something who is going to have the engine and this lifelong acclimatization that I think is going to make it possible. Because um, right now we're seeing that, you know, there, there's, uh, there's a track significantly higher even than Aguas Calientes, but it's not, it, it's too high for the aerobic records. You know, we're, we're breaking all of the sprinting and, you know, the shorter events. Um, th those records are all falling, but the longer stuff, uh, it's just too taxing on the body. The, the riders, I, I, I don't think we're there yet to do it. Mm -hmm. So, but, uh, but yeah, no, the hour is fascinating. I mean, it's, it's the one thing in cycling where you know, what I love and what I do um, is almost a one-to-one. -one. You know, if I say we're going to do this and it's going to save this, it'll make you go this much farther, uh, then that's totally true. If, if the rider can hold the power that we use in the model, we can model the record within, you know, 15 meters or something. I mean, it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty unbelievable how, how good uh, the math works out when you do the hour record. When did you fall in love with mathematics and physics? You you were kind of good in these things in school, or this came when you studied? Oh, you know, I um, I loved math as a kid. Uh, well, really, it was my I'd say my eighth grade math teacher uh, pulled me out of class one day and or pulled me out of seventh grade and put me in eighth grade math and and said, you know, you you have a huge potential and you're going to be good and. Uh, and I didn't agree and I didn't like it. And I thought he was a big jerk and, uh, uh, but he was right. And um, yeah, I really, I worked so hard um, for him and was a big like math competition kid and all that. And I really just fell in love. He was the one that really taught me 
that there was beauty in the math. You know, it wasn't just numbers on a paper and solve, you know, getting the answer right to get an A on your homework, but there was this like beautiful thing if you could picture it in your brain. And um, yeah, and from then on, I was just super into it. And um, yeah, I, I still to this day, it's, it, it, I've, I've forgotten, I think, you know, most of what I've learned so much of it when you don't use it. Uh, you really do lose it, but I find real beauty uh, in the mathematics and, and uh, yeah, seek, seek it out where I can. And, and that's where I'm fortunate too, to be in a place where, um, you know, there, you can always find people who know more than you and, and pull them in, you know, so we've, we've had great luck over the years with pulling in experts from aerodynamics or CFD or structural analysis. And um, I just love those, being able to sit with people uh, who are real experts uh, in those, in certain types of mathematics. And, you know, I know 2% of what they know, um, but you can just sit and be kind of immersed in the, in the, the beautiful math. Yeah. I love it. Love it. You get invited a lot as well to Tour de France and for big teams now. Have you been at a tour 2019? Ooh, was I there last year? I don't even remember. I'd have to look at my calendar. No, I think tip. Yeah, I was there last year with, um, so unfortunately, events like the tour, well, events like the tour, the tour in particular is not fun to be at. Um, mm -hmm. It's just logistically too hard. And so, you know, like if I go to the tour and I was there last year with um, uh, EF and Bora and Ineos and a couple other teams, um, you go in the, for the days ahead you know, the three, four days ahead. And that, that's where a lot of the work gets done. And then once the race starts, you, it, it's too, it's just too hard to be around it. You know, the, the roadblocks, the having the right pass, you know, being able to take your car to the right place. It's just, it, it's not fun. Um, and so I've learned that lesson. I, I was fortunate uh, in the CSC and the Saxo Bank days to be fully embedded with the team for two different tours. Um, and that's nice because, you know, if you're on the bus with the riders, you go where they go. Uh, it's uh, logistically much less complicated. Um, but we're at a place now that nobody needs that. And, and my life is too busy to go spend three weeks with them. So, uh, yeah, I typically do the Flanders-Roubaix week every year and the week before the tour um, with our teams. And, and, you know, if there's a big... Uh, the Olympics, something like that, you know, we might go and do some modeling for certain teams or riders. Um, you know, I do a lot of looking at pavement and looking at wind conditions and, um, but anymore, a lot of this can be done in computer models as well. So it, uh, you know, I, I don't want to put myself out of a job and say that, you know, you don't need to go there, but most of the time you don't really need to go there. <laughs> Who's the most fun guy and, and to work with from the riders and who understands most what you're doing for them and with them? Ooh, um, gosh, that's a good question. I love, I would say currently, I really like working with uh, Andreas Clear, who's mm -hmm. you know director at EF. Uh, we worked together when he was a rider. Um, if, you've, if you've seen, I, I did a great a podcast interview with him and it's on our YouTube channel and Marginal Gains. Uh, I mean, he's just he was a non-believer, non-technical rider up until he got to test team, uh, Cervelo test team, mm -hmm. and it just clicked. And I think that makes him so powerful. Um, 
and so open-minded uh, to work with as a writer because he, you know, he kind of sees both sides of the coin, right? He, he comes from, you know, being a, a true non-believer to a true believer. Mm-hmm. And he can sit with his, his athletes and really um, kind of get into their heads over like their skepticism or their issues or their difficulties uh, with what maybe the team is asking them to do or to ride and then kind of reframe it in a way for them that really helps them understand it. And he, as a result too, he's someone that, you know, I can call if we've got a problem uh, or maybe like, a, you know, uh, a psychological issue, you know, the writers don't want to do something, um, you know, can maybe help you understand that. I, you know, one of my favorite stories with him, he, um, you know, we, we constantly wanted them to be on deeper wheels uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, the math on the deeper wheels is just so clear. You know, I, you know, I, I put you on a deeper wheel in a Tour de France stage, you know, I, you go from a 303 to a 404 and that's 300 calories saved. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a slightly higher top speed. Um, you know, it's going to help you close the gaps, um, you know, when the attack goes, those sorts of things. And, and talking with him about, you know, trying to get him, it was Damon Reinhardt at Cannondale, now at Cannondale, was a test team then in, uh, at Cervelo. But talking to him about, you know, riding 404s in the mountain stages and saying, well, you know, if you're, you know, you're doing all this work to get the guys to the base of the, the early climbs and you're spending the rest of the day in the laughing group. And so you don't need these lightweight wheels to climb, but you do need them for all of the other things. And he was the, the one to really say, yeah, but what you don't understand about the laughing group is, you know, we climb at the pace of the slowest rider. So that doesn't matter. He said, but we descend like a bat from hell. Mm-hmm. And he said, and if there's one wind or one bobble or you open a gap at, you know, 70 kilometers an hour, you will never close it. And so he said, so my fear isn't that I need two watts here or four watts there or 200 calories saved, but that if I have too deep of a front wheel and I have to touch the brakes or I, I get a nervous twitch uh, on the descent and I open a gap, then I don't make the time cut. And so, you know, and, and he could just so eloquently kind of put it together like that and think, oh, that's, that's the one thing the math doesn't show, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and I've, I think I've had a million conversations like that with him. Um, he's just got that great thought process. You know, uh, Rolf Aldag, I know you, you had on uh, Wolfie's talks. He's, he's another one, right? The, the very technically minded like that. Uh, I'd say as far as riders go, other than that, Roger Hammond, uh, people don't, you know, he's probably the greatest English speaker to, to ride the cobbles of Roubaix. And um, not most people don't realize he's actually a degreed engineer uh, who worked as an engineer before he became a pro cyclist. Uh, and so he was really instrumental in helping us um, with that 303 development, but then also in helping us find ways to explain a lot of these things to uh to the cyclists. And so I, I still, he's probably somebody I think about and occasionally trade emails with, but I think about him probably weekly, you know, some, something he would have said or a way he would have said something uh, that I use, uh, you know, with, with our athletes today. So. How's Peter Sagan? He's, you know, he's a, he's a character. Um, I mean, I, what I love about Peter is, you know, the Peter, you see in the interviews and all of that, that kind of crazy out there guy. I mean, that that's kind of what he's really like. Um, 
you know, he's, he's someone for me, he's not, he's not super technical. He really trusts in what you tell him um, and what the team says to do. He's a terribly nice guy. Um, but, you know, I think when you're, when you're at that level, you know, there's a, there's a distance um, that, that the riders really, I think someone like him needs to maintain for, for their own sanity. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I've worked with enough of these guys over the years to know that it, it's not my place to, you know, go be his friend or, or to get close to him. At, you know, I just, we're there to do what they pay us for. So um, he, he's a lovely guy. I honestly have worked with him for, I don't know, four or five years. And I can't say that I know him all that terribly well, because it's just not someone to get close to, you know, in some ways, you know, Lance Armstrong was the same way. I mean, you, you'd work with him. I worked with him for a number of years and wind tunnel testing and all this, but, you know, I think when you're, when you're at the very tip top, everybody wants a piece of you. And, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't need to be one more person wanting a piece. <laughs> right. So you just, we do our work and we kind of step back. Um, yeah. And then, you know, there's, I think one of the things that's great about this sport is that really, you know, there's just so many real passionate enthusiasts about the sport um, who are kind of shockingly normal. You know, it's, uh, I really enjoy, you know, hanging with the teams and, and being embedded with them during the races and, you know, having dinners and things. And, you know, you sit around after the race and they talk about, you know, cars and movies and stuff like that. And they're, everybody's just seems so normal in, in those moments. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, I really love that about this sport. I think something great as well, what you started, I don't know, maybe one and a half years ago was the marginal gains podcast, uh, with your two friends with Hoddy and Fatty. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, that's an unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable source of information. And I think a lot of, as you mentioned before, a lot of the uh, riders, when they were in confinement during the, Uh, uh, UE tour, they started to listen to the podcast and that, that really got it even more traction than it had before. But how did you come yeah. up with the idea and, and uh, how is this going? Oh, gosh, it's, it's going great. I mean, I, I kind of can't believe um, the response and the feedback and the growth. I mean, I think, I think for subscribers, we're like 15,000 subscribers or something now. I mean, it's, which I just never imagined. Um, yeah, I think my, my favorite story about the podcast was last year I was uh I was at Roubaix and uh, I think my flight out was on Monday so quite often you know we we go and you know I'm involved in all the prep right but I don't need to be there for the race um and I got a cheaper flight out on Monday and so I was running wheels for EF and so you know you're you're in a car following the race and kind of holding running the spare wheels and um we were the car that had the Carrefour de Labre, you know, the last brutal cobble section kind of before the finale. And um, we park and we go running into the, into the sector and I'm standing there with, with wheels. And all of a sudden from like, I don't know, 20 people down across the street, somebody starts going, we love the podcast. <laughs> like what the hell just happened? Um, yeah. It's, it's nuts that it's, it's global. And, uh, but no, the, the idea I, I'd had the idea in my mind as a blog um, and I'd started sketching out these blog ideas and I just never had the time to make the blog. Um, you know, a good blog post, by the time you get pictures and graphics and stuff in it, I mean, a good blog post can take 
10, 12 hours, right, of, of time to create. It just, it, you just don't have that time in the day running a business. And, um, and it was Hadi uh, actually emailed me and said, why no podcast? And thought, I, I don't know, what would we do with a podcast? And he started kicking ideas out and I thought, well, that kind of sounds like, you know, could be the blog I was putting together. Can we do it without graphics and pictures? Uh, you know, can we do it just audio? why not let's give it a try and yeah it just i mean it took on a life of its own it's been really an unbelievable thing uh you know for me and and i think for the for the company and the listeners and you know i think we averaged a couple hundred questions an episode coming in and so we started doing the ask josh anything um and that's really snowballed and uh yeah and now we've got a, a youtube channel the the silka youtube is marginal gains tv and we're trying to take some of the more complex questions that you really do need graphics mm -hmm. uh, or, or pictures to help answer. And we're, we're taking those and doing them uh, on the marginal gains TV. And that's, uh, that's also really starting to pick up and, and, you know, gain some traction. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, but I, I really owe the success of that is I owe to Hadi and Fatty. Um, I mean, those guys really, truly, like they do all the work. <laughs> So they, there's, I think people don't think, I mean, as you know, there's so much preparation um, that goes into these things and they, you know, they make all the questions and they kind of do the intro and the outro and the layout. And I, I just get to show up and talk, which I'm good at. <laughs> yeah, no, very good. And the information is really in depth and I've never listened to, to anything like that. And I think you really get answers for all the questions Sometimes even obviously to questions you never thought about, but then you, you speak about it and it's really inspiring. And then you, you kind of see the world completely different. Obviously the whole thing with tire pressure, which really opened up my eyes to this, to this whole scenario. And, and it really changed writing. And, and obviously it changed writing for a lot of our customers because all our team now is absolutely behind that, that theory that this, this works so much better. Yeah. So thank you very much for that. I think great work. No, thank you. Thanks for listening. Yes. <laughs> Spreading the word. Yes. It's actually quite interesting when you then, obviously we know us for a few years, but when you hear somebody so often and, and for, for one or two hours a week and you listen to someone's voice and then you, you think, oh, that, that is really so familiar. And when you see them each other again, I think it's really interesting how, you, how nice it is to stay in touch over, over a podcast like this. Yeah. No, thank you. It's great. It, it's funny. I, uh, you know, we're not doing trade shows at the moment, but uh uh, Eurobike last year, I, like three or four people stopped me in the hallways and said, wait a minute, I know your voice. Yeah. <laughs> like they had no idea what I looked like, uh, but they heard me talking and, and uh, it, it's funny the response to that. So it's, it's great. So you became, you became a famous person. So my, my next question would be, uh, if, is there a famous person you, if you could change their life for one day and you could live their life for one day, is there someone uh, you would like to be for a day? Oh gosh. Um, man, that's a hard one. I don't, I'm sure there is, uh, <laughs> but you know, I uh, truly, I, Elon Musk, he, he's crazy. Um, okay. you know, and I, I disagree with so much of what he does and says, but you know, his, his career plural, right. I mean, he, it, he's touching all these things that I've had lifelong fascination with, you know, space, uh, mm -hmm. automotive, um, you know, the stuff he's doing in solar power and energy. I mean, those are all 
uh, things I've, you know, had contact with in my career. I think, you know, if you, um, if you added, you know, aircraft in there, it would be like complete, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I, I, to this day, I'm obsessed with planes and space. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to actually uh, do a tour at SpaceX um, and, you know, have friends that work at Boeing and at NASA. And, you know, I, I just, I just love that stuff. I love being immersed in it and, uh, and really being surrounded, we've said before, like surrounded by all those crazy smart people, you know, it's, it's, uh, those are places that are kind of magical because you can, you know, you, you can just ask unlimited questions and, and be surrounded by these people who have, have answers, right. Or, or, are working on them. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I think we, we live in this social media world where everybody's on Facebook all the time with all the answers, you know, everybody's a, is a, uh, genius at everything, right. It's like all of, all of our friends are like PhD epidemiologists at the moment, right. With, with coronavirus and everybody seems to know everything, you know, and it's like, well, shit, that's not the world I live in. I I've got 10 million questions. Like I, I want to go ask them of people who really know. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think being, being, you know, him in that environment and just being able to walk around and absorb, uh, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Who do you, when you speak about social media, who do you follow on Instagram? Is anyone who sticks out and you would say, this is my first to go to and I want to see what he's up to? Oh, um, no, I got, and I got to be honest, I, we have somebody that does that. Uh, Michelle in marketing does Instagram for us. And I personally, I really try to avoid social media because it's just, there's so much negativity out there, right? And Instagram is probably the, the one platform worth being on yeah. um but but from a time perspective it's just it's finding you know i don't have the time or, or you know i might scroll through it to see how our stuff looks and but no the others the the twitter and the facebook i just it's it's a rabbit hole that i don't want to fall into you know i i it's like i, I also i don't uh, like we don't have tv in my house right because it's just it's a big time suck <laughs> you know it's it, uh, it's just too easy to fall down that rabbit hole. And, you know, two hours later, you've learned nothing and you've missed out on two hours of something you could have been doing. Uh, so no, I, I really think that the, I was lucky early in my career, you know, as Andy Wording said, there's, uh, you know, the, the two, the, there's two challenges of business, right? And it's time and money. And in the beginning, it's, you know, you have no money. And then as you grow, you realize that, and, and you become successful, you realize you have no time. And, uh, and so it's kind of that challenge of thinking about valuing your time in the same way that you value uh, your money. And when you think of it with kind of with those glasses on, it really, there's just a lot of stuff. I, I, I joke with my people all the time. You say you, you need a to-do list, but you also need a not to-do list. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, falling down, uh, you know, Facebook, um, you know, li listening to your friends argue on, on social media and watching television and a bunch of other things. Those are on my not to do list. <laughs> Almost one of the questions I had on my list is, is there any important and non-negotiable rule in your life you have and you live by, but you almost answered this, that you want to have time for your, for your, for yourself, for the family. Uh, is there anything else you would say defines you as a person? Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd say for the family, you know, I'm pretty, um, 
I'm pretty strict with my, you know, I'm, I'm all about like trying to be present, you know, people say that, but, you know, like I turn my phone off at night, um, you know, most every night I always try to have like a day of the weekend where I'm completely disconnected digitally and, and just try to like be in the moment with the family, um, you know, and just enjoy the kids and the things that we're doing. I think that's important, you know, to not because like we said, you, you know, I could be doing email 20 hours a day and still have more, you know, because email just begets more email. <laughs> right? or, um, but the other one is, I think just, you know, for me, it's all about curiosity. Um, I mean, I just look at the world as like, it's this infinite amount of stuff that I don't know. And, you know, God, I'd love to learn all this stuff. You know, it's how do we, uh, you know, who can I ask this question of, or what book can I find or what resources out there? And, and, you know, I think for me, it's, it's trying to just always have that, um, that curiosity. Cause that's where, you know, I, I think if I look at my career and think of where I've been successful at zip or, or at Silco with product, it's, you know, I'm not any smarter than anybody else, but I think I've been good at trying to absorb as from all these different places. And then, you know, those true moments of creativity a lot of the time are just taking three or four ideas from other industries or, or, or other places and, and seeing a way to fit the puzzle pieces together. Um, you know, and I think that's, it, it's just, if you're always curious and you're always absorbing, it feels like it's just that many more uh, opportunities for those collisions to happen. You know, I, I think of uh, Steve Jobs used to tell a story about uh, you know, the rock polisher. His, he said when he was a kid, his neighbor had this rock polishing machine. And, you know, you've seen it's like a little barrel and you put the rocks in it and then it sits there and spins and and the rocks get all polished and smooth. He said, you know, it's the idea that you could put all these crappy rocks in this thing and it would sit there and they would all just bang against each other. And a week later, they're all these polished, you know, beautiful things. And um, I think at some level, you know, that's that's kind of like life. If I can learn you know, from everybody around me and surround myself with all these ideas and smart people and, and technology. Um, it's just that many more collisions, right. To keep polishing and, and building the ideas that we've got. So, uh, yeah, stay curious. That's my, probably my motto. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Um, I have a few short questions as well for you. Obviously, uh, I want to see, uh, anything on your bucket list you, you have, haven't achieved and you want to achieve. That's a good question. I, I have to think about that one. I, no, not, not that I can think of. <laughs> my, my bucket list is all, uh, I'm pretty bummed. I, one of them is we, we were supposed to go to Africa with our kids this, uh, this summer and that's now all canceled. But um, my wife has a medical project uh, in Kenya that she works with and we were all gonna just go spend a month uh, kind of bouncing around Africa and, and seeing the animals and safariing and all that stuff. But, uh, but no career bucket list. I, I feel really fortunate. I've, I, I've been really, really fortunate in, in my career to, you know, I think it's, I, I joke with some of the guys at zip, you know, we, we've had a couple of uh, what you call like once in a career successes. And, and I've, I feel like I've been successful to have probably half a dozen once in a career types of success um and but you know 
if if you're doing it right every maybe four or five years you you you, you could land on another one and, and so that's I don't know what that is but you know it when you see it do you have a party trick like something you you impress people when you sit around the table and you show off a certain skill Ooh. no I would so like to though <laughs> yeah no no not really there there's like when I when I do talks or technology talks there's a handful of yeah sort of like parlor trick things that you can go to that uh that always work um you know i think last time i, I was with you we we talked about blowing everybody's minds with the wheel remember that the the uh yes, 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 you know yes. what what speed what speed is the bottom of the wheel going yes. <laughs> remember and, and uh and so for our listeners you know the the bottom of the wheel is touching the road it's at zero and the hub is going at the speed of the rider, which means the top of the wheel is going at two times the rider twice speed, yes. uh, twice as fast. And uh, that one always seems to blow people's minds. But yes. uh, actually, funny enough, you say that Wes was uh, was speaking about the talk today, and then I was speaking to Wes, and he said, "Oh, I remember that with the wheel?" And I didn't get it. The wheel. <laughs> he was fascinated about this. Very good. Um, if you once write your memoirs and uh, uh, the book about your life, what's the title? Wow, man, you're like deep. These are deep <laughs> questions. <laughs> Ask Josh Killing anything. Me. Uh, yeah, it is Ask Josh anything. Ask me all the stuff I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, gosh, I don't. Not yet. I don't okay, know we'll what that. Yeah. No. <laughs> Very good. Um, I actually I, I researched something. The the CDA of a penguin. Yeah, because I had I, I was listening Ooh, okay. to the talk and I thought is actually uh, give it a guess. You know, but I think a good guess on somebody on a, on a, a CDA level is zero point zero point one eight one eight eight one. What do you think is the penguin? We're talking a penguin, like like yes. swimming, like swimming. hydrodynamic seating. Yes. They're not standing there with like this. Oh, hydrodynamic. <laughs> oh gosh, and it's CDA, not CD. Um, I'd say, I mean, the CD, the drag coefficient, I would probably put somewhere in the like, I don't know, 0.0. Oh three, oh four, and then what's the area of a of a penguin? It's probably like a tenth of a meter. Or so, yeah, very good. You were very good. The three three zero point zero three three point oh three three. Okay, yeah, yeah, times point. So yeah, it'd be very good. Yeah, I mean, they're they're amazing. You look at birds and stuff. I mean, some of our best shapes. You yes. look at you know a, a good airfoil will be in the. Does have a CD of the point oh, you know, oh two to oh four, so point oh three three. That's awesome. Yes. One last question: If there would be option to spend one day with a person, dead or alive, who would that be? Ooh, dead or alive. It's a hard. Probably Einstein. Okay. I mean. Yeah. He's like that. That's one I, I I have a real with math, a real physics obsession, and and uh, 
you know, I think of Einstein and, uh, you know, Richard Feynman. I mean, he's the other one that, that, you know, they just, they conceptualize stuff that I feel like I've read about and thought about for 20 years. And every time, you know, I think Feynman had the quote that, uh, you know, everyone who, who says they, if, if you say you understand quantum physics, it means you don't understand it. Okay. <laughs> and I think, you know, that you take the groundwork that like an Einstein or a Feynman laid and you come in and you try to understand it and it's still impossible to really wrap your brain around in a way that, yes. that you can conceptualize. I'd love to peel that back further and, and see, you know, how, how did they get there in the first place, right? I, I can't wrap my head around it properly knowing it exists. How the hell did you guys get there from zero, right? Um, yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting, isn't it? When, you, when you, your brain just stops somewhere and you can't take it any further because you just don't get it any, anymore. Yeah, very good. Yeah. I took enough of your time, Josh, and it, it was a great pleasure. Oh. Uh, just as I expected, it, it would turn out. And, and I think really what you do with Silka is amazing. I think you make really, really many cyclists happy about the, the quality of your products. Um, I think that the podcast is amazing. Uh, I think you're educating and making cycling life so much better and easier for a lot of people out there. So keep, keep this up in, in both ways. And, and I'm really looking forward to see you soon when we can travel again. We we'll hope to welcome yes, you back. Yes, me to too. For another well, talk. Thank you. Life. And uh, again, thank yeah. you so much for the time. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure, Wolfie. Thanks so thank much. You. Are you into downhill riding? Downhill riding? Down, downhill? Like on a mountain bike? Yes, downhill. We have our next <laughs> guest is an absolute superstar, a mountain bike superstar. It's something new to our talks. Uh, we have uh, Greg Mina, obviously multiple uh, gold medalist. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah. and he's going to be on on Friday. So that's going to be a super exciting talk for us. Oh, that's awesome. About his yeah. amazing and long career. Now that's they, like quantum physics. I watch those guys and I have no idea. Yes, they, define, they define physics. They, they change something. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, having been to some of those events, I mean, you, you stand there and you look down and you, my brain just cannot see the, the possible line. I mean, it looks like falling off the edge of a cliff and uh, no, <laughs> I do not downhill. <laughs> but that's Josh, awesome. Thank you so much. Best regards. Thank you, Wolfie. And I hope to see you soon. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. Love thank to Gabby. Thank you, Owen. Thank you. Bye-bye.